0: Jerusalem. And I want to begin reading with verse 28. This is Palm Sunday. Next week will be Easter Sunday. These passages mark the final week in our Savior's life. Luke 19 verse 28, and when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. When he read those verses, they were told to go into a village on the opposite side. And when they entered in, they'd find a colt, a young male horse, where never a man had sat. Loose him and bring him. And if anyone asks you why, are you loosing him? You say, because the Lord hath need of them. And they that were sent went their way, and found even, as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said to him, Why loose ye the colt? They said, The Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. You have to understand that each of the Gospels serves specific purposes. We know that all of them are designed to paint a picture of Jesus. So Whenever you read one of them, You gain some useful information. But Matthew goes out of his way to paint the picture of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That would be in the northern part of Israel, up near Lebanon. Matthew chronicles the journeys of the Lord, the teachings, the miracles. Mark is an abbreviated version of Matthew written by a totally different author, but nevertheless it contains a number of those teachings and miracles. The Gospel of John was designed to lead you to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, so the specific miracles and salvations were chosen so that you would believe. Every reader of the Gospel of John can read in the stories of those people something about their own lives. The miracle of the transformation of the water into the wine at Cana. Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the evening. Or somebody that is sitting at a pool of Bethesda, a woman caught in adultery, a man that was blind. Someone that had been dead for four days, but raised up. All of these stories are written so that when you read them, you come to believe that Jesus is Christ. But the Gospel of Luke was the first Bible study course that we could say that was ever written. The chapter that I'm referring to now, chapter 1, says that one gentleman by the name of Theophilus, he was the reader, And Luke took him from Jesus' birth to the Ascension. The bulk of the book is dealing with Jesus' trip to Jerusalem, what occurred in there. Because in chapter 9 of Luke, it says in verse 51 that at this point it came to pass, that Jesus should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Then in chapter 13, verse 22, it says, He went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying, journeying toward Jerusalem. And Then as we read in 19, verse 28, it's going up to Jerusalem. I want you to know that Jesus had a steadfast determination to accomplish his task. He knew why he was born. He came into this world to die. He was born into this place so that he would be able to redeem all of us that had lived in sin. And because of that, he knew that from the cradle to the grave, he had to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem. So that was the destination. Whenever somebody knows their task and assignment, there are all kinds of things that will come about to try to deter you, distract you. But Jesus didn't allow these things to happen. In fact, in the previous verses, we learned that when he was coming into Jericho, there was a man climbed up in a tree I wanted to see him. Earlier, when he was outside of Jericho, a blind man received his sight. One miracle after another. Because of these miracles, later, as we saw in verse 37, the people were shouting and praising God. So he traveled with an entourage. A crowd accompanied him from village to village, town to town. And our Savior is making his way closer and closer to Calvary's hill. But in order to do that, verse 29 says that he passed through two villages. Now that was his ministry. He traveled. He was not a settled figure, but he went from one place to another. And when you read the gospels, you quickly take note of this fact that in all of these villages where he went he touched somebody's life. Somebody came to follow him. He went into Capernaum, changed lives, city of names and changed the life of a widow that had lost her only son. But what village did he have to visit to reach you? What home did he have to enter into to reach you? Because of his travels and because of his journeys, he's able to touch hearts and lives. So again, I say that he touched you and he reached me because he came passing by. And I think all of us are the better because... Jesus made his way in our direction. And very often, of course, he comes in our direction when we're not looking for him. Some fishermen were washing their nets. Jesus comes by and says, follow me. A tax collector was sitting there handling his affairs. And the Lord comes and says, follow me. He even speaks to Nathaniel, a man that had been brought by Philip who was sitting under a tree, and when Jesus looks at him, he said, Here is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit or deception. I don't know what you might have been doing in your village, but I do know he's interested in you in your village. You may not have been interested in God at all. You may not have been thinking about God. You may have been in need of a miracle. You may have been someone that was self-righteous. You might have been humble. You could have been an introvert, an extrovert. You could have been wealthy, a poor. Whatever was going on in your life through the processes of time, Jesus came to where you were. And if He didn't come directly, He came through the person of one of His witnesses. Somebody shook your hands across the back fence. Somebody knocked on your door. Somebody that you worked with gave you a tract or showed you some kindness or some love, one way or another, you got on the Jesus train and began to follow him simply because this man set the example in the Gospels. And All over the world, there are people that are following Jesus today. Everybody's story is different. But the testimony essentially seems to be the same. He reached down and found me where I was and lifted me up and changed my life. So whether you were on a mountain or in a valley, whether you felt like you were clean or unclean, Jesus comes passing by Bethany. What makes Bethany special? Lazarus died there. That's where his sisters were that sat at Jesus' feet, who had chosen the best part, but a man that had died, whose family was broken and grief-stricken, Jesus went to the tomb and he basically called Lazarus forth and the man came out of that particular sepulcher. Every town, every village has some kind of memory attached to it of some life that was changed. Even sometimes when we're on the road out here when we drive through certain towns, I think to myself, I remember preaching there one time. Or I know that so-and-so lives in this town. Various villages have these memories. Your memories may be related to something from your born-again life or something from your pre-Christian life. But nevertheless, if you can remember where you were when Jesus began to deal with you, that place becomes a holy, sacred place in your memory. Now, Jesus knows this is the final week of his life. I don't know that all the people following him understand that. But nevertheless, they're with him. And just maybe if we knew that we were with someone during their final days, we would have acted differently, asked different questions. If your grandmother or grandfather, great-grandmother could come back and you knew she only had 72 hours to live, I guarantee you, you'd have questions that you failed to ask while they were there. Precious memories. But the Bible says when he came to the Mount of Olives, it was at this point that he launched his two disciples to one of those villages. So the Mount of Olives, which becomes the teaching place, the Sermon on the Mount and other places for the ascension, It's at this particular mountain here where the Lord himself uses it to tell the disciples to go and look for a colt. He didn't do it at any other village, in any other location. But right about here is when the Lord began to speak. Now, I said earlier Mount of Olives for the Sermon on the Mount. I think that was a different mountain, but here is what I want to emphasize on this point. There's some places where you go in your life that when you get there, the times and purposes of God become apparent to you. They become apparent. And it's not until you get to a certain location that God does a certain thing sometimes. When you meet a certain person get to a certain place, it becomes a certain time. That point becomes important. God didn't send two of his disciples when he was in Jericho. He didn't send two of his disciples when he was at Cana. But now he knows that his time is just about up. Death is up ahead of him, and this is when he realizes he has got to make preparation for his entrance into Jerusalem. And he's going to fulfill scriptures and prophecies. Now, in your life, then... Where were you when God began to change the times and seasons of your life? I think it's in Psalm 31, verse 15, that says, My times are in your hands, O God. Deliver me from my persecutors. All of us live our lives in seasons. The things that you wanted when you were five and six years old, your desires changed when you became a teenager. And once you became a teenager, you'll notice that your desires change. once you entered into your 20s. And somebody that's in their 40s certainly has new desires that differ from somebody in their 20s. And people that are in their 70s and 80s aren't even craving the things they wanted in their 40s. I don't think I've ever met anybody that's in their 70s or 80s looking for another house note. And most people that are at that 95 or 100 not trying to buy a new car and get a car note. And I haven't seen anybody that turns 61 and then all of a sudden said, Pastor, pray for me. I want to believe God. I want to be a mom one more time. Your desires change according to the seasons of your life. Jesus knows that he's approaching that moment where he himself is going to face that cross. And so now in preparation for that. Two disciples have to leave. Now this man obviously was determined and focused. And I don't think that we've ever been as focused as Jesus is. A runner sits, gets down into his stance or her stance, and then here's the starting gun and takes off and has to remain focused in order to keep their form. The Bible tells us about our Savior That he ran his race. Yeah, he secured the cross. He he, he endured all the circumstances and the things that came into his life in order for him to be raised up to the right hand of the Father. That man was focused. Even when he had distractions, the devil came to him wanting to tempt him on every hand. But Jesus never changed, never changed. One temptation comes to us and sometimes we collapse like cards. Somebody comes into our life and winks an eye at us or shows us a little attention, and all of a sudden we start moving in a different direction. Somebody offers us a job, offering more money, more blessing, and we decide we ought to leave. You should remain focused. Because by remaining focused and planted, you'll find that in the end God can cause you to flourish and he can bring blessing into your life. If he could be focused and he lives in you now, you can be focused. And if you remain focused, then the blessing of God will come to your life. So this is what he was. He could see where he was going. He could see what he was doing, and he saw what lay ahead. On the other side of death, there was a resurrection. He knew that. By telling the disciples in verse 30 to go into the village, he was showing us that he knew something they didn't know. That's one thing about God that's true. He knows everything. We know so little. But when God, who has knowledge, imparts knowledge to us, then we've got to determine what we're going to do with that now. If the Lord declares his command to you, then you've got to decide to trust him or you're going to disbelieve him. But if you trust him and have confidence in him, then the next act has to be one of obedience. Because what corresponds with faith works. And if you don't have action with your belief, then you don't really believe it after all. So these disciples hear the Lord say, go over there to that village, and I'm sure they're wondering, how does Jesus know that? We don't know if he prepared this and arrange this beforehand, or if divinely by some supernatural impartation of knowledge, the Lord has revealed to him that there's a cult there, but he tells those disciples there's a village over there. There's a cult that's tied up. God is able to give us insights that we don't possess on our own, but when he speaks to our heart and reveals things, we've got to pay attention. What if God were to show you in a dream something that was going to come to pass in your life? Then you've got to be willing to believe God for it. What if God showed you through a dream something terrible that could possibly take place? If you believe it, you better pray and intercede. And don't just say, well, I just wonder if this is going to happen. No, you begin to pray and intercede and ask for deliverance. That's what you do. Faith means that when we have knowledge, we act on the knowledge that we possess. Go into the village on the opposite side of where we are now that is facing you, and when you're going in, you'll find the code. He knew exactly where it was, the precise directions. He knew about the village. He knew about what was in the village. He knew about who was in the village. He said, if any man comes to you and asks you what you're doing, here's what you say. Now, if you're traveling with somebody who knows things like that, that's amazing. I think the Bible tells us in Kings about the gentleman who was wanting to go to war against Israel. And every time he tried to go to war, then the Israeli army knew exactly what he was going to do. And then finally, that man said, is there a traitor amongst us? They said, oh, no. There's a prophet of God over there in Israel, and God's telling him in his bedroom what we haven't known, but is revealing what your strategies and your plans are for your battles and for the warfare. And we see then that God is able to reveal something supernatural. He can let people know. Some of you might have known that your child was going to be a boy or girl. Some of you might have known that you were going to give birth on a particular day. God could have spoken to you to let you know you're going to have a certain job. Maybe you had revelation that the season was ending for a particular job. God gives information. And when he provides that information, as I said, then faith means that we act on that particular information. If you see a door closing, God will open another door. You've got a covenant with him. And God's covenant for you and with you is to bless you, to keep you, to preserve you. And with that covenant, you can face any challenge, you can face any difficulty, and no cross has to be able or should be able to intimidate you because you know that God is on your side. That's the key. Christ knew that. The disciples felt safe and secure with him. The same way you felt safe and secure with your parents growing up, this is how we should be with God. We should know He's got our back. We should know that He goes before us. We should know He's bringing up the rear, that His mercy and grace, it overflows in our lives, and you should never be under the impression that you're by yourself. Any village you're in, Jesus goes with you. Those disciples turned and walked away from Jesus, and just as, It was told them, the Bible says in verse 32, just like he said. And doesn't the Bible say God's not a man that he should lie? All of us have had people that have let let us down. We've all had people in our lives that said things that weren't entirely true, partly true, sometimes wholly false. When it comes to God, I can promise you, the Lord tells you to do something you can expect it to be just like he said. He told the disciples, go down to the water. Cast your line into the water. The first fish that you find, open up its mouth. Thrust in your hands, you're going to find a coin. Go pay taxes. They went down there, and sure enough, just like they found it, inside that fish was a Roman coin. Jesus knew before they ever arrived, that fish would be there. I think in your life and in my life, when the Lord tells us to do something, he already knows what's going to take place and transpire before we ever walk in obedience to what he said. We have a tendency to think we're blindly walking into it and we don't know what is going to take place. That may be true from our perspective, but it's not true from the perspective of God. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows whether or not things are going to work out for you in this regard. He knows whether or not things won't work out for you in this regard. But I do know this, what is important for us is that our character is established in the midst of every trial. Let the fruit of the Spirit be manifested. If things work out, praise God. If things don't work out, praise God. If the Lord opens the door, we say glory to the king. If he doesn't open the door, we're still giving glory to the king. Because God's honor and God's glory is not determined by whether or not we think he's worthy. He's worthy. But I promise you it will be just like he told you if, in fact, he did tell you. Now, how can I hear from God? They heard from him because they walked with him. You'll hear from him by reading the book. Pull the book out. Start your day with the book. By reading the book, you give the Spirit of God something to use when making a deposit in your heart. If you don't put any money in the bank, there's no money coming out of the bank for you. But if you make a deposit in your heart with the Word of God, then the Spirit of the Lord can bring things to your remembrance. Maybe something you read ten years ago, a verse that you haven't seen in three months. It comes back to you. But when God speaks, I can promise you he's going to honor his word. And those disciples found that young horse. And can you imagine them walking up to a horse that belongs to somebody else? And they're over there untying the horse. And if you're the owner, I mean, you're one, what in the world are you two thieves doing in my property? And knowing some of you in here, two people would have been at your place unhitching a pony from your post, you probably would have pulled out something and you probably would have started shooting and asked questions later. But thankfully, this man had a question, but the disciples already had a prepared answer. And what was the answer? The Lord hath need of him. So they took an animal that was under the ownership of a man and then brought that... Cult to Jesus so that he could take possession of it. Now we see then that in this village, this colt that was bound was then set free by the disciples who brought it to Jesus. I wonder what other things are in villages that are tied up and bound. I wonder what other people are bound by addictions. I wonder what other people are tied up to a kitchen post and can't get free from it. They've been wanting to get free from it. They've been doing everything in their willpower to get free, just like any kind of animal that gets trapped or ensnared. You've seen some animals that even gnaw off their legs trying to get free, but stuck in the middle of something and can't get free. How did the coke finally get free? Two disciples came. That's your ministry and that's mine, to help people get free. All of us were tied up and in bondage, even if you didn't think so. Yeah, even if you didn't think your life was like that. And somebody was coming along over and over again, trying to untie you from the post, but just like a pony that doesn't want to be bothered, you might have kicked at somebody, you might have even tried to gnaw at somebody's hand just to get them away, because you were happy being tied up. I don't want to hear anything about a preacher. I don't need to go to church. You're like a restless colt, rebellious animal, tied up, needing to be set free so that you can be what God wants you to be as a witness for the king. Nevertheless, how many people today are like that? Pound. Even this morning somewhere, I'm sure, there's somebody who woke up, maybe had a little bit to eat, and then all of a sudden went straight back to sticking a needle in their arm. They couldn't stop it if they wanted to. They lay there in the bed at night shaking and trembling. They want out of it, but they don't know how to get free because they're tied to the post. That's where they are. How many young people are there that are unhappy with their life? They're unhappy with their home. They're unhappy with their school. They're unhappy with everything. They lay there dreaming about escaping or maybe about taking a razor blade and just slicing their arm and maybe ending it all. What's the problem there? Sin. What's the issue with sin? It's got them bound to the post. They want out. They don't know how to get out. And when you've been bound so long, you don't even know what it is to be able to run free because you've never experienced it. A lot of people like that. Yeah, a lot of people like that. See people go to jail and do three years and they're sober. Get out of jail, walk past the first bar. Three hours later, totally drunk. What happened? It was hitched to that post before they went to prison, hitched to that post while they were in prison, hitched to that post when they came out of prison. doesn't have to be that way, no. God's always trying to send somebody your way, my way, to be a blessing to us, but like I said, we don't always want to hear what they're trying to say to us, but we need to listen to what they're saying. You say, well, Pastor, I get tired of the phrase, I told you so. Well, if you listen the first time, you wouldn't have to hear the other hundred and ten. See. Yeah. We all get tired of I told you so. These disciples, they loosed the animal and they told the owner in verse thirty four, The Lord hath need of him. Now, you take a sentence like that with six little words there. Then you ask the question, why in the world would the Lord have need of this animal? How in the world could God ever have a need? His Jesus in the flesh. He needed food, you know, needed clothing. He needed disciples to spread his message, but on his way to Calvary in order to fulfill one of those Old Testament prophecies that said he's going to go riding into Jerusalem, on the foal of an ass, and riding on the colt, and the people are going to be praising him and glorify him. He has a need here. He needed the colt. I think he needed me. I think he needs you. I mean, remember now, he's going to go into Jerusalem on this animal. But for you and me, our role is to bear Jesus throughout all the world, yeah. And I've told you before that it's on us, in us, through us, that Jesus can sweep the floor in the high school or the elementary school. It's through us that Jesus is able to give flowers at a funeral, work in a medical facility. It's through us that Jesus is able to touch somebody else's heart in life, working on their car. It's through all of us that the Lord is able to be a blessing to somebody else because we were unhitched and we moved from the possession of a sinner who wasn't using us for noble purposes, and now we're being used by Christ because he possesses us entirely. And he doesn't just leave us as we were under the ownership of the former master. He gives us new garments. Yeah. Put on that garment of praise for that spirit of heaviness that you once had. And the Lord comes and He adorns us and He dresses us. He even gives us armor to put on. He says you can withstand the devil in fight. But the whole time. Christ is the one that wants to be glorified as we are doing our best to carry him throughout all the world and to show him and his beauty to people. We're not trying to magnify how great we are. Can you imagine if this little horse would have been carrying Jesus down the hill and thousands of people lying in the street and they're screaming and shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Son of David, you're worthy. We love you. We adore you. And can you imagine if that horse coming down, dressed in all that good stuff, would all of a sudden, you know, got all puffed up, like, well, wait, this is pretty good. These folks are interested in me. They're not interested in the cult. They're interested in Christ. And as much as we try to glory in the flesh, it is Christ that wants to be magnified. It's not our talent not our ability so when folks are praising you they're praising god don't get too excited about that now you know but yeah i think it's a it's a wonderful thing that somebody went out of their way to make sure that i came to the lord you can see in verse 35 the first few verses here is the mission of the church here is the mission of the christian and they brought him to jesus that's your mission that's mine To be a witness to let people know who the king is, now, what if you say, Well, pastor, I don't have that kind of temperament you know i'm just I'm just not bold like that when it comes to discussing my faith, and I'd just as well leave that you know for some of you that are a lot more outspoken. You know what I found out I found out in every person's life, even the shyest and the most modest and the introverted type of people, all of them have areas in their life where they feel confident. Yeah. And everybody can raise their voice. I've seen young ladies that I didn't even know could shout. Then they become cheerleaders. And And I used to think, oh, my goodness, where in the world is all of this coming from? all this yelling and screaming, and I would have never thought they could do all of that. And then, of course, a handful of you mamas and daddies, I never knew you could yell until you shouted at me. So it just works out that way, you know? Yeah, works out. But you pray for Miss Dorothy. Yeah. So understand, then, our ministry is to bring people To Jesus. When you do so, you're following the example of all the disciples. What was it like for Andrew in John chapter 1 and 2? Operation Andrew, bring his brother Peter to Jesus. See? His brother Peter. He started at home. And all of us, when we work to bring our family members into closer proximity to Christ or into relationship with Christ, they may be agitated initially, but God's big enough to calm us down. I told you about Alexander the Great. When he was a boy of about 12 or 13, his dad, Philip, and them were out breaking some horses. And... This one person after another amongst the ancient Greeks were being tossed and thrown, and that horse was rearing up, ready to fight and attack. But Alexander the Great, he just kind of stood off and watched as a little boy. And then he finally said to his dad, as the men were getting ready to sit down for some kind of break, he said, well, Dad, do you mind if I take a shot? and breaking the horse. He said, no, this, this horse will kill you. Well, Alexander the Great got out there with that horse anyhow, and what he discovered was that horse was skittish, just really timid, afraid of its own shadow. So he turned that horse so that the horse was facing the sun and couldn't see his own shadow. By the time the men came back from the break, Alexander was riding that thing bareback. It was broken in. A lot of people have different kinds of fears, different kinds of anxieties that come, but if we can turn them away from their problem and get their eyes on Christ, get their eyes fixed on the one who's greater than all of our fears, some of that other stuff will fall aside. We'll calm down. Calm down. Well, this is what it means to bring somebody to Jesus Not just merely in salvation, but also bringing them into a greater revelation of who God is in their life and what he can do. He can pull us out of anything if we let him. Or you can be like the horse that just focuses on the shadow. We bring you to Jesus. We are bring you to Jesus because we want you to focus on the Son, and that's why Christ has been drawing you unto him all of your life, however many decades, however many years he's been working on you. He's been trying to get you off of the shadows in your life so you'll focus on him. You say, Pastor, I'm afraid of crowds. He's trying to get your eyes off the crowd and unto him so that when you're in the crowd, you'll see him, think about him, and talk about him. Well, Pastor, you don't realize in my family, nobody's ever lived past the age of 57. There's always been heart problems and people are dying and Christ is drawing you to him to get your eyes off of what's been in the family for generation after generation to focus on him. Just because everybody else had an issue. That doesn't mean God can't do something special for you. The Bible says they brought the colt. To him, brought him to Jesus. And this is our mission. Why did Billy Graham preach the gospel for over 75 years, doing his best to bring people to Jesus? He wasn't out here magnifying anybody else. He wasn't trying to tell everybody they need to come to a particular uh, actress or sports figure. He wanted people to think about Christ. And he let people know Jesus is the one that saves. Why did Oral Roberts travel for years under a tent, over 300 crusades, all across this nation and around the world? He was preaching that Jesus is a healer. What he was saying was just as powerful as what Billy Graham would say. Both of them preaching the truth of the Word of God and the Lord demonstrating his ability over and over again. Jimmy Swagger traveled around the world in the 70s and 80s and 90s preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus saves, preaching Jesus heals and Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Thousands of people around the world were filled with the Holy Spirit and saved and touched in their body. But he preached the same message that Graham preached and Oral Roberts preached. What was that? Bring folks to Jesus. Jesus can meet any need. But we have to bring folks to the right people. Don't take them to Mohammed. Don't bring them to a false religion. I opened up the mail the other day. There was an invitation for me to go to a, a uh, Jehovah's Witnesses deal. And I read the little invitation and I just thought, if I'm looking for calm and peace and assurance in my life, I'm not going to this. I'm going to Jesus, and I'm looking for the Jesus that's in the book, you see, in the book. If we take people to the right folks, then we can expect the right results. But if we lead people in the wrong direction, they're never going to find what they found in the Bible. You can't find with Joseph Smith what they found in the Bible with Jesus. You're never going to find with Buddha. The folks in this book found with Jesus. He said, Pastor, that's a bit narrow. I'm going to say it again. The disciples, they brought him to Jesus, not to anybody else. So who are you witnessing to, and to whom are you bringing them? And then finally... You can see in verse 36, the people, because they were so excited about Jesus, it said they spread their clothes in the way, and they shouted, saying, Blessed is the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I don't know what it is about Jesus, but he does make people shout. You understand that? Yeah. I don't think in all of my years going throughout the Middle East that I've ever heard Muslims shout for joy. I mean, I've heard them yell. I've heard them scream. I've heard them march through the streets, beating their chests, yelling death to America and death to other people. But I'm talking about joy, shouting. If you've ever turned on the television and looked at some of the figureheads for the Nation of Islam, Farrakhan, and Minister Shabazz, and some of those people, they're always angry, upset. You just don't see the calmness and the assurance and the joy in their hearts and on their faces that you see in somebody that loves God. Well, I think it's it's true that what's in the heart will be reflected in your countenance. The Bible says a mere heart does good like a medicine. The one that has medicine in their heart is happy, whole, healthy. The Bible says that a merry heart is a continual feast. Every time I've been to anybody's house where there's been food everywhere, there's a lot of smiling going on. But there are a whole lot of people who when I see them, I'm thinking there must be a famine going on because nobody looks happy. But a merry heart, a continual feast, it produces joy. You let God be to you what you want Him to be, then you won't have to worry about what everybody else is saying. That colt's life changed when Jesus climbed on board. Never seen crowds like that. It never carried anybody of such significance. Your life is the better today. Because Jesus is in it. Yeah. You've got one opportunity, one shot in this world to be a witness for the king. One lifetime in which to do it. Do not blow your opportunity. But let God be God in your life. And you'll find that it's going to bring blessing to many people. Now, back in 1994, I went to Colorado Springs to go to a meeting and had the minister over there. And this was right after some Iranian people had just been martyred in the Middle East because of their faith. And there was one gentleman whose first name was Mehdi when the Islamic court had sentenced him to death in December of 1993 they had gave him an opportunity to defend himself listen to what he said he said i'm a christian he said as a sinner i believe believe that jesus died for my sins on the cross and by his resurrection and victory over death has made me righteous in the presence of the holy god the true god speaks about this fact in his holy word the gospel The name Jesus means Savior because he will save his people from their sins, and Jesus paid the penalty of our sins by his own blood and gave us new life. He's given this testimony in an Islamic court in front of a panel of judges, and with jurists there, who in a few moments are going to sentence him to death. But he said, in response to this kindness, the Lord asked me to deny myself and and be fully surrendered as his follower, not to fear people even if they kill my body, but rather rely on the creator of life who has crowned me with a crown of mercy and compassion. I would rather have the whole world against me, but know that the Almighty God is with me. I'd rather be called an apostate, but know that I have the approval of the God of glory, because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. For him who is God for all eternity, nothing is impossible. All power in heaven and earth is in his hands. He said, they tell me, return to Islam. But to whom can I return from the arms of my God? It is now 45 years that I am walking with the God of miracles, and his kindness upon me is like a shadow, and I love him and owe him much for his fatherly concern." The God of Daniel protected his friends, and the fiery furnace has protected me for nine years in prison, and all the bad happenings have turned out for our good and gain so much that I'm filled to overflowing with joy and kindness. Then in closing, he said, they object to my evangelizing, but if one finds a blind person who's about to fall in a well and keeps silent, that one has sinned. To know Him means to know eternal life. Life for me is an opportunity to serve Him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of His holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. And He did give His life. Yeah. But 45 years before this, as He said, Somebody had to bring him to Jesus. Yeah. He lived his own life. He did his own thing. But somebody witnessed to him and shared the faith with him. And a wild, rebellious man, young man, became a witness for the king. Folks, hold your ground. Don't compromise in these last days. Hold fast to your faith and expect God to do wonderful things. Amen? Amen. You've got one life, folks. One. Not two. Just one. Make good on every promise that God has made to you, and make good on every pledge that you've made to God. Every day is different. I understand that, but God remains the same. Let's stand. Been a long time since we closed out service this way, but I want to close it out this way. Uh, you can put a song on back there, but let's just come down here around these altars. Just stand here and once again pledge our lives to the king.